Welcome to Rallon's Recap and today we will be previewing the Champions Cup and talking about some other current stories in rugby. So today I'm joined by journalist Charlie Morgan from the Daily Telegraph. So thanks a million for joining me again, Charlie. And with our focus being on the Champions Cup and the impending final, what have you made of the competition thus far? Hi, Richie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just... Absolutely, kind of the overwhelming feeling is how uh, satisfying it is to have these two go go at it in a final. And they went to they kind of came together in the quarterfinal last year. I thought Saracens were slightly undercooked; they were suffering with a couple of injuries. But for them to reach the final now, I've seen it described as era defining. We can get into that later. I'm not sure it is era defining just because of how um, well they're both set up to kind of for for sustained success over the next couple of years. But yeah, like I say, Mm. they've. I think they've won six of the last nine since um, of these titles since McCall took over as Saracens DOR, or they're going to. Um, this is the sixth one. They're going to either of them are going to win, and it's just really kind of uh, good to have such a, a captivating final. Yeah, no, I thoroughly agree. And just from a broader sense of the competition, like going into the tournament, you had Leinster's favourite, you had Saracens shortly follow that, but there was a a potential of yet again maybe Munster pushing on and maybe being in the reckoning. There was the Rassen ninety two Toulouse uh, threat from France. Were you slightly let down by the performances of other teams or has it got to the stage a bit a la like the Premier League that Saracens lens for the top two teams are just that much better than the Chase and Pack? Or do you think that certain teams didn't perform on uh on the grand stage in Europe? I think that's I think that's really a really accurate way of putting putting it across as a season as a whole. I think those two Lancaster Saracen started out as they looked more settled. They looked um, they looked to have the most kind of most depth, the most resources, the best kind of idea of how they were going to play. But I think you've said it yourself. The, the best game I think in the tournament so far is the quarterfinal between Leinster and Ulster, and I think that's an example of how another another kind of well, one of the provinces that we didn't want necessarily, you know, it was going to be, it was meant to be a sort of consolidation year for Ulster, but if they'd have won that, that would have made things really interesting. And Toulouse were fantastic to watch, you know, a little bit of a surprise package, and but they probably, the semi-finals probably their ceiling like it was Munsters. Um, yeah. I think it's kind of going to, going to hopefully prove to be a year where those two sides um, as well as Racing, you know, Claremont will be in it again next year. There, there will be more challenges next year. And I think the standards going up and up and up. But I think for us to have got the final we've had is kind of, it was maybe slightly predictable in a way, but it's also an endorsement of just how many dimensions these sides have, the, the quality of players they've got and how they knit it all together, their coaching as well. Um, you know, their coaching tickets are exceptional and you can tell that by the way you know where they're going um whether the individual coaches are going after these places um as well um so yeah these two these two rightly in the final and i actually i actually think that you know we've seen encouraging stuff from from other contenders too which kind of bodes well for the next few years of the tournament and slightly gearing towards the final here like what sort of differences so Leinster seems to constantly be evolving. They've had a few of their senior players leave over the last year or two. And Lancaster's come in. His blueprints have really been sunk into the, the DNA and they've brought in Felipe Contepomi as well. But like, if you look at the two teams, 
like in Europe, say this year, like Saracens average about 34 points. They roughly concede an average about 15 points a game. And then you look at Leinster, they average about 32 points scored and concede about 14 points a game. So they're very evenly matched from that statistical point of view. But on the pitch, what have you seen that you hadn't seen in previous years from both teams? Because as you said, Saracens last year, they kind of had a up and down season. They didn't flourish as much as people anticipated them to do it. And likewise with Leinster, they've had one or two rocky moments this year, both domestically and in Europe. Mm. But ultimately, when it's mattered, they've uh, delivered pretty comprehensive performances. Yeah, the, the best. Uh, having said the best game of the um, of the tournament was Leinster. Also, I think the two best performances were uh, Leinster at home to Wasps, and then Saracens in this in this last semi final. And what struck me was actually, you know, we mentioned how similar those those kind of. Um, statistics are as far as points scored and points conceded their styles look really similar in in those two games you know they they're both both sides who are obviously really kind of clever off um set piece um so in it's for an in attacking sense to start with they're both both very clever off set piece both score a lot of tries between you know first and third phase but what what Saracen showed against Munster that Leinster have showed kind of increasingly under Lancaster is that kind of when they get on a roll and when they get a little bit of gain line that they kind of almost surrender that structure and they're coming in waves, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys stepping up at scrum half, a lot of guys stepping up at um, first receiver. And then if they need to go wide, they've got real kind of playmaking brains um, to implement that, you know, obviously, uh, with Johnny Sexton back, well, back nearer his best, I think it's fair to say post Six Nations, Lancaster are going to have that, and um, and Owen Farrell, Alex Good, Alex Lozowski are the, are the distributors with you know with Brad Barrett in there, who's just a rock. They're the distributors that give um, Saracens that important width when it's on. But what's the kind of common thread between them is that their packs are dynamic and they really think for themselves or seem to. So um, weirdly, although kind of, I, th- I think they're probably a little bit, uh, you know, they're more similar than we think in, 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 um, as far as their attack goes defensively, you know, they're, they're, um, quite, you know, they're quite interesting. It's slightly interesting. It's quite slightly similar there too. You know, the big boys that win collisions often, they can soak up pressure for a large amount, you know, long, long periods of phase play. Um, it, the hope is that they don't uh, cancel each other out, but I don't think they will. I think they're kind of slightly too, too dynamic to do to do that. I think there will be flashes of quality there. Um, so yeah, just just fascinating, fascinating clash of stars, but actually between two sides that are more similar than perhaps we think at first glance. Okay, when I consider the two teams, and I think Leinster under Lancaster, they've they're one of the rare teams that can kind of change the way they play depending on the opponent or even depending on where they're at from a performance level. Like when you look at Saracens traditionally, you're thinking they really base a lot of their moves off set piece, especially line out launch plays off that. Mm -hmm. And then just the pressure game. I don't know what they do (laughs) at their training base, but once it looks like Wigglesworth's going on to pastors news, they find Ben Spencer who can just launch absolute missiles into the air. And with the wingers in the back three, they tend to have their kick chase tends to always be the best in Europe, if not one of the top ones anyway. While if you look at Leinster, they can they can grind out victories. They can have a bit more of an extra type game plan where they just bludgeon you to death with 20, 30 phases and tire you down as the game goes by. Or else they've shown one or two tidy power plays, a bit like Joe Smith back in his heyday when he was involved. But it is definitely a quite a similar 
similar two sides going against each other. So it should be fascinating. But a bit more specific on the final, like where do you think the defining factors, where will it be decided if possible to kind of guess where that is? Like obviously the lineup will play a massive role on both sides of the ball. But like if you look at individuals, is there certain elements of their defensive systems that one attack could get at? Like where do you think some of the weaknesses may be for both teams? Well, weaknesses is hard to say because I just yeah, think that, it's, it's the contestable areas, isn't it? That's what we've got to look at. And it's really interesting. You mentioned there Saracen's kicking game. Ben Spencer is, he's got three caps and all of them have come, you know, five, 10 minutes off the bench here and there, but he's playing the best, you know, he's, he's the form English nine at the minute. And his, I thought his performance against Munster was, was superb in harness with the guys taking his kicks, like you say. And what was really, really just, fascinating to me was that afterwards Alex Sanderson the, this was the level of Saracen's the level of detail in Saracen's game plan was Alex Sanderson said afterwards um, we didn't want to give Munster any energy from defensive sets so effectively they were kicked they didn't want possession in that early part of the game because they know they knew that with Ty Byrne with CJ Stander with Peter Omani with um, Jack O'Donoghue with these guys they they're so they're so good at swarming the breakdown. They're so good at winning penalties, and that that emotional energy is so important for Munster. Um, I think they'll do that again against against Leinster. Although they'll be wary that uh, Leinster can build pressure through phases, like as you mentioned, like like somebody like Exeter Chiefs. But they'll back their they'll back their defence to force errors, if not you know if not jackal turnovers, and certainly through through collisions because Maratoji's playing. Up there with the best rugby um, he's played in his career, which is a you know a big compliment. Mako Vunipola just doesn't seem to have bad games anymore, um, even though he's coming back from long injury long injury spells at a time. Billy Vunipola is playing better than he was in the, during the Six Nations. George Cruz is is going really well. There's Jamie George too. They've got that, and and then Michael Rose. Michael Rose was the kind of the big missing factor of their season last year his his injuries yeah. derailed Saracens a bit but I think he as a line out option and just as another kind of gnarled physical athlete he really is so important for Saracens so there'll be there'll be so much this this both sides are brilliant as you as you as you say yourself both sides are brilliant um imparting pressure and then striking you know and really punishing errors so for instance thinking of the kind of um the Leinster Toulouse uh, semi final. Toulouse have made a, c- a couple of naive errors, and they, you know, they get away with them. They've got, they've been getting away with them. I imagine for a lot of the Champions Cup season, and had got yeah. to a, got to a semi final playing some fantastic rugby. But Thomas Ramos kicking a, a restart, you know, into the dead ball area and giving Leinster that centre field scrum, you know, proved fatal. That's a one try, and then the, and then the other one was a quick line out, wasn't it? When you know uh, James Ryan, Scott Fardy, they all sort of swarmed. Um, Swarmed Ramos again, forced to turn over, and then you get Richie Gray's yellow card and, and another try, and it's suddenly it's seventeen three or seventeen six or whatever it was, and it's so far back, um, back from there against Leinster. I, I, I can't, you know, I've James, James Ryan against Maratoji is is a is a tussle that's going to be going on for the next decade. That's always going mm, to be great. Yeah. Owen Farrell and, and Johnny Sexton. Um, I think. I think. Uh, Sexton has been so influential in how Farrell's taken his game on. I think if you look at seasons post the Lions tours when they've been together, um, 2013, um, after that, 
Um, Farrell found another dimension to his game. I think he kicked on again after 2017. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a master apprentice sort of thing going on there. Um, Fardy and Fardy and Rose, you know, similar similar profile of player there, sort of rangy sixes. Um, and then the midfield, a lot depends probably for Saracens on, on how fit uh, Brad Barrett is because he's just so important. Because um, Robbie Henshaw looks looks back to close to his best, and and Gary Ringrose is just one of my favourite players around at the minute. He just error counts so low, he's so diligent. Um, yeah, and then you, and then you've got the back three as well. Everywhere there are these are these fascinating tussles, and I think you know as as any final, Jerome Garces is refereeing. He'll be under the under the microscope at the breakdown, and because those you know pressure relieving or or pressure imparting pen, uh, penalties are just so important because both sides are so good as you, as you say at uh capitalizing when they when they're building that pressure and do you think it's it's funny that you mentioned garces i was probably going to follow up a question uh now anyway with him was once he was announced as the the referee and it is an important appointment because every diff, every uh, referee seems to have a different kind of go-to area, one area that the public deem he's good at, that he's not. And the general consensus from fans is that he's not, his strongest point isn't exactly the breakdown, but that's completely subjective, obviously. But the few things you could take from the semi-final and even the quarter-final from Saracens and Leinster's perspective, and you did a piece on it as well, particularly uh, Scott Vardy was one of the, the culprits, is that at the breakdown, Saracens included as well, they really are borderline, if not <laughs> completely illegal at times. Yeah. So do you reckon that's going to be a massive um, like part of the fine without understating it? As in, I wouldn't be surprised if after 10, 20 minutes, what those two teams have been getting away with in the past probably would have been brought up pre-game with from both respective coaches. So yeah. do you think in terms of being able to adapt to the actual the climate and what the referee's doing, it's going to be very uh, vital in both teams' kind of defensive and attacking performances? Hugely, hugely. And, and you don't want it to be the deciding factor, obviously. But um, Gars, is, Gars is a funny one. I think I think over the last couple of seasons, I, th- I think kind of watching his, his games, a pervading feeling is that players often have to adapt on the hoof more than any other referee just because um, he seems to be fairly, you know, you say, oh, this ref has a trait, this ref has a trait. Sometimes he coaches players away from the ball. Sometimes he gives quick penalties. Sometimes he's hot on holding holding guys in. Sometimes he's not. Um, I, th- I think it's, you know, the, the Munster Exeter game was baffling, some of the, call, some of the calls in that. And it, mm. it just seemed like, He's a sort of referee where it's almost who dares wins, and actually, that's not a great. Um, it's not a great. Uh, it's not very conducive to a very flowing kind of games of rugby, really. Uh, so I, I hope he's not the decisive factor, but I do. I do think because of the way he referees, which seems to be kind of standoffish at the breakdown, I think you'll get guys competing really, really hard, and that obviously, um, obviously suits Scott Fardy. Obviously suits someone like Sean O'Brien. Um, Obviously, suits someone like Maratoji, although Maratoji gave away three penalties against against Munster. Mm. Um, you, yeah, you, don't, you don't want it to be the the deciding factor. I just kind of, you know, it's not for me to tell a guy who's refereed Lions tests among among loads of international games and is getting these big games 
it's not for me to tell him how to referee, but it'd be interesting to see what had happened with a couple of early decisive penalties, um, whether that would clean up tackle area. That'd be quite cool because these these guys are, they're, they're so, so good at keeping possession. And Saracens, you know, we've always known Leinster can do that, you know, and spread the ball from their own 22 and just build and build and build and build pressure. Um, Saracens showed that they, they were comfortable in possession for longer periods against Munster. Um, it will be interesting to see what they can do with a with an attacking breakdown that's really well policed because some of the some you know, some of the clear outs in the, in the Saracens monster game were you know were, were nuts. Um, I can't they were they were, mm. it was amazing to see them kind of uh, let go. But Saracens were re- you know they did a lot of legal aggressive accurate stuff as well. Um, so they're, they're going to do exactly you know they are going to do exactly the same again against against Lenser. They're going to come really really hard really aggressive there. Uh, so yeah, the, the spotlight will be on Garcia, and then and then you look at the scrum as well. That's going to be that's going to be vital. Tyg Furlong going up against Marco Vanupola. Um That's and Keen Healy's playing the rugby of his life, um, and Titi Lamasaleti Saracen starting tight head against um, Munster limped off this weekend, just gone. So they could be um, they could be playing Vincent Cock there at, at tight head. So yeah. <laughs> The referee is just another another kind of really intriguing thing about this final. It'd be great if the players decided it though. And I suppose just to push you into a corner and corny is like how how do you see the final going? Like from my personal aspect, like a lot of people tend to bring up last year and they said, uh, listen, I still think Lancer are much better than Saracens, but both teams respectively have lost some big big players. Like you look saying Nasewa won't be there. If you look at, say, Jordy Murphy, Dan Levy, who were involved and very influential in the game last year, won't be there. But equally, you bring in someone like Conan, who's having a great year. And then, say, if you compare that to the Saracen side, like you had, say, Marcelo Bosch, who's probably in the latter years of his career and probably on a, a downward, I don't want to say spiral, that's way too harsh, but yeah. definitely uh, his best days probably were behind him. You had maybe in Sigway, who I'm not going to say overwhelmed, but that was probably a year or two too soon for him compared to where he's going to be now yeah. and then you had the likes of Schaltberger etc so like from how I view it I think both teams as you said they're more or less they're primed ready to go my only concern would be as if Saracens came away with loads of injuries and as you said there and against that Wasps side there on the weekend they didn't they came through relatively okay I know the tie yeah, went yeah. off with a knock but there wasn't four or five casualties so I look at it and see two really really strong teams and like if I was forced into a corner and obviously I'm not going to sound biased here when I say this, but I just think like both teams are going to be well matched. They both have their strengths. I just think that the bench of Saracens with the experience it has, I think that could make a huge, huge difference because I don't, I don't anticipate one team being 10, 15 points ahead with 50, 60 minutes on the clock. I think there's just going to be too much at stake. They're going to try pressurize each other too well. But I just look at the likes of Schaltberger, Skelton, Tompkins, Strettle, um, as you said, even maybe Vincent Cock there. Like they have huge talent to come off that bench. And I'm not trying to sound disrespectful to Leinster, but I look at Leinster and I see some young names. I see some lads who are yet to fully establish themselves in the European scale. And I compare them to what potentially is coming off uh, the bench for Saracens. I think it's it could potentially swing us in favour of Saracens, but what would your take be on? 
I think I think all of those are, re- are really fair points. I don't I don't think last year's game, as we've kind of hinted at before, and you've hinted at there, I don't think that has any any bearing on it. As equally as um, as talented a player as he is, and he's going to win a lot more England caps, and he's going to probably win a lot more stuff with Saracens. He hasn't figured in the in the kind of best. He was playing for Saracens A team on on Monday night, which is which mm. is crazy. They've you know they brought in Will Skelton, who's been a kind of <laughs> as much as a secret weapon as a seven foot twenty five stone lad. <laughs> but he's but he's he's you know you've got the technical accuracy of of Cruz and Itoji, and then at, at fifty five minutes you're bringing on somebody who's just smashing everything in sight. You know, hitting um. Hitting, hitting rucks, hitting, hitting you know, really hard lines from second receiver. It's really tough to tough for tiring defenses to kind of uh, figure that out. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I, I backed I backed Leinster at the beginning. I think on this on this podcast, back Leinster at the beginning of the season, and Saracens have just come on very very strongly. It's so ironic that. You know, the, the old Pro 14 minutes was the big kind of argument last season. Actually, we're recording this on um, Wednesday morning. We'll, f- we'll find out Saracen's side to play Exeter for sure on Friday midday. But they, they're in a position now. They've secured a home semi-final. And even though it's Exeter and, you know, they won't care at all about that fixture. They could, they, they'll probably play the A team that, that played on Monday night in it. And they'll just make sure that, you know, the, the Wasps game was so strange at the weekend. They, they picked... They picked the side that played Munster, and then there were about three or four late withdrawals. You know, the big guns, uh, Marco Vinopola, Michael Rhodes, uh, Richard Wigglesworth, all of those guys withdrew. And then at 60 minutes, they didn't even have the bonus point. They just won the game with just a, such a dominant first 50 that um, the rest of their, the rest of the, you know, Owen Farrell, uh, Billy Vinopola, Jamie George all came off at, at 60 minutes. And it was just it was a really subdued game. It was really well, quite quite interesting to to just for them to so explicitly target that European final. So they're going to be fully mm. loaded, or maybe apart from Lamis Italia at Tighthead, um, which is awesome. And then if you look at Leinster, Van der Fleer and, and Levy uh, being out is tough. And it's a lot of pressure on Sean O'Brien, but he seemed to respond to that against Toulouse. So that yeah. rule, and that looks like looks like Leinster will be. From the start, be seriously well, um, well equipped, and you know, for for a fast start, I just, I can't I can't call it. I said said Leinster at the beginning of the season it feels bad to it feels kind of um, a bit weak to kind of to to veer from that, but I, I do think Saracens will just nick it. The prediction, definite concrete prediction. There'll be a I reckon there'll be a drop goal. Both sides have, have been attempting them in recent weeks, and um, I want to keep the uh, scoreboard ticking over because the. The defences, the respective defences, are just fantastic, really disruptive, really strong. Um, so it'll be one of them, but that's not really, uh, that's not a particularly. It's a prediction, yeah. a slight, it's a slight prediction. <laughs> yeah, but um, like even the the most bookies have it a fifty fifty split. Right. So I don't right. blame you for sitting on uh, the fence. <laughs> fence, I should say. Um, and just to tie it down, so. Just to finish on our Saracens Leinster chat or preview, one of the questions I got sent was to name. They asked us to name our combined Saracens Leinster starting fifteen, real quick, what? if possible. Yeah, all right. Um, so this is yeah, this is really fence city as well because you want you think about <laughs> how the twenty three is fitting together, don't you? So do you want 
Keen Healy to start and Makovinopola's come off the bench. I've got to try and rattle it off, okay. Um Makovinopola, uh Makovinopola, uh, um Jamie George, Tyg Furlong, Ryan and Atoji. Uh I love I love Rhodes and I love Fardy. I mean, mm. They're both great players. Uh go Rhodes, um then O'Brien and Billy Vinopola. Uh, okay, Spencer Sexton, Farrell at 12, Ringrose 13, James Lowe left wing, uh, Liam Williams right wing, Alex Good fullback. Yeah, I'd, uh, on a technicality, I'd maybe force you to choose between Farrell and Sexton, but I suppose if you're talking about your best 15, I suppose those at 10 and 12 is uh, pretty hard to debate. Farrell is, I think. But yeah. Despite. despite um, you know, despite his issues this year, I think he came back and looked a little bit more sure. Like, Farrell's look, Farrell's looks, you know, I, I just feel he's made his slight, really interesting that Eddie Jones replaced him against Scotland and he used the term he'd lost his edge. Um, that is a really interesting term for somebody that is, that is so, that has been so on that edge and that is clearly what yeah. he feels gets the best out of him. I wonder whether it's just a mature, a kind of maturation process and he's just, um, you know, maybe just saying, like figuring out what it's like to maybe set back and, and sit back and kind of feel the game a little bit more. I'm not sure. Um, but I do, I do feel that the yeah, Sexton's playing slightly, playing slightly better than him at the minute, although, there's a lot of rugby left to be played before the World Cup, and that's what I wanted to be um, peaking for. And the thing is, with with Farrell playing for Saracens, is that you've got Alex Good there, who's you know just one of the sharpest rugby players they've got in England. So he get, I think he gets a lot of help there as part as far as a second pair of eyes. Um, and you know, I, I'm not even sure whether I, th- I think his best position from an attacking sense is that second second receiver anyway, that twelve. So. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. That's that's a fascinating one, but I think going into it, Sexton's playing slightly better than you. Fair enough. Well, that will conclude the, the Leinster Saracens. You could fill up probably two hours chatting about them, so we'll, we'll park that and move on to one or two other uh, topics before I let you go. So the the biggest talking point in rugby, unfortunately, is not its players, but it's not about their performances on the pitch. It's, um, it's about their actions office, and there's been a, a lot of debate going on with regards to Falau's tweet and the likes of, say, Billy Vanapola supporting that are showing uh, somewhat support. And then following on from that with the Munster game, the BT coverage, etc. It's a lot of papers have written about it. A lot of fans have had their take on us. Like, how is the, first of all, like, what's your reaction to it? And secondly, what what's the kind of vibe over in England towards, say, Billy and the general, the general, kind of problem that has been presented now um, with regards to their comments made about their beliefs, but the controversy that's followed. Okay. Yeah. First of all, my take on it is that as ugly as it is, uh, there needs to be an element of education and, and compromise on both sides of the whole episode needs to lead to a kind of considered debate about the roles of religion and, and, and social media as well in, in wider mm. modern society. Faith is, so important in a constructive way to a great amount of people and but my 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 point of view is i wouldn't for a second profess to knowing anything about the role of it and how important it is in in melanesian polynesian communities and 
in Australia and New Zealand, which is the, which is the place that Falao is coming from. Um, I think yeah. we, we've seen this over the last couple of days, I think. Um, again, it's only just kind of cross my bowels sort of thing, but the, you can see the fallout affecting people like the Samu Karevi, I think has been something like he's been asked to apologize for, for um, posting a Bible verse and Taniella Tupo, yeah, young, young prop from um, Queens and Reds has, has, has said something like you might as well fire us all. And now that isn't a constructive place for anybody to be, let alone. And it's, and it's a place where rugby Australia are going to be really worried. Um, Paul, what's something that's worth keeping an eye on Paul Cully, who writes for uh, stuff in New Zealand, I think sometimes Sydney Morning Herald, he's spoken to some Pacifica academics. That's going to be really interesting, really enlightening. Um, the, the other side of that is that Falau's, you know, Falau's comments for me, um, as well as being seriously ir- irresponsible for somebody with his profile and following, um, you know, t- to to effectively voice something that's oppressing others and threatening their notion of you know liberty, their freedom to love who they love, it's seriously um, seriously irresponsible because that that's what it is with a profile like his. Yeah. As an athlete, as as phenomenal as he is, he's he's built up this profile and he's therefore built up. I, I feel a, a responsibility and it, you've got to think about how the pervading kind of um, scenario that I've been thinking of over this whole thing is are young gay guys who, who are, who are struggling or struggling with identity and struggling to come out and struggling because they feel like they might not have that support. And for two, two, well, yeah, it's tough, it's tough to group uh, Vinipola in with Falau, but to, for them to even look yeah. at Falau and think, God, that's that's the level of hostility. That that must be awful. That must be that must tear you apart. So and 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 besides anything else, those that kind of um, being that draconian seems fundamentally unchristian to me and to you know the tolerant um, the tolerant the tolerant kind of uh, side of, of Christianity that can be so constructive. Now, I thought I thought Billy Vinopolo's endorsement was at the very best clumsy and damaging and I know I I, I didn't think he articulated what he wanted to articulate particularly well and then it looked like with you know with the um with his post-match interview after the Munster game it looked like he was doubling down on that which you know is a homophobic stance what he what he kind of articulated now I, I think I know he's got this, this these official warnings from Saracens and the RFU, which is a good proactive step. You know, Mark McCall was at pains to say that we feel like we've dealt with it, and that was kind of this was quite well wasn't amusing, and it was amusing. He was he was making this this point like quite firmly, just as Billy's kind of post match interview was circulating, where it looked like he'd doubled down. Now, I wonder whether more could be organised. Uh, by Saracens or by the RFU to build bridges between Billy Vinopola and the LGBT communities on the back of this because I, th- I think that's important um, because as much as um, you know the, the big kind of um, big selling point of rugby is it, it's inclusivity right and yeah and it's exactly it's just an episode that's that's really damaged that one way or the other yeah no I agree with you saying that like something positive needs to be kind of drawn out from this and I'm sure it'll, it'll go on now for several weeks especially yeah. with Falau's here and on the horizon but I think it is important just from a just a global scale that no one can as you rightfully said 
kind of put themselves in other people's shoes, especially when it comes to stuff with beliefs or religion or anything like that. But I think everyone can agree that no matter what your take is on it, hopefully something positive could come out because the awareness now is being raised, whether positive or negative, but it is an important matter. And as you said, rugby is inclusive. So I do think it is vital that at the very end of the day, once it's all you know, buried and finished with, that something positive has been taken from it. So I do, I do completely agree with you on that topic. So just um, last topic is people wanted us to get your take more or less on just a quick World Cup preview or even kind of leading on from the Six Nations review. Like, how do you think England are shaping up? Do you think now the Six Nations has told us a lot more about other teams, i.e. France, Wales, Ireland, Italy, Scotland? In other words, like what, what, what are you feeling like as an England fan heading towards the World Cup and what do you reckon the likes of Wales and Ireland will be? Um, how will they be contributing to the World Cup in a few months, if you can tell? I'd go, I'd, I'll start with, you know, start with Wales. I think the, um, the I didn't, didn't expect them to win the Grand Slam. I thought they might win the tournament because I thought they'd lose. I think, actually, I actually thought they'd lose to, to Wales. Sorry, but Wales would lose to England. <laughs> But Wales yeah. lose to England, and then they. I always thought that they'd be in a good place to beat Ireland on that last weekend, um, just because they ma- they match up well with them. They seem to Warren Gatland seems to really mobilise them and get them seriously pumped up to play against Ireland. Um, and it was yeah. at home, and you know they're, they're so good there. Um, and but I thought Ireland would beat. I thought Ireland would beat England, and then I thought uh, Wales would beat Ireland. So that, and then England beat Wales. So I thought there was going to be a little bit of a kind of merry-go-round with that. Um, the kind of a few themes coming out of Wales Grand Slam win is that you know that their attack was a bit blunt, and it was the the, the defence that that won it. Although while that's true, the defence was phenomenal, and that's what's kind of led to this Sean Edwards bidding war a bit, which has been a bit, yeah. a, bit a little bit unsavoury. Um, I think they played their cards close to their chest with their attack, and I think that they can expand a bit there um if you look at what dan big is doing at northampton and and what gareth anskin can do when the shackles come off a bit i think they've got they've got levels to reach and actually they were really clever with that pick and go game and using those big wingers that was you know that showed a little bit of thinking outside the box which is kind of hints at, at more to come um so yeah i mean if they they've got a tough group and fiji will be excellent uh, Australia will have got their got themselves together for sure. Um, Checker was fantastic at, at the last World Cup, um, but if they get through that Wales, it's England, France, or Argentina in a quarter final, and they won't be scared at all by that. Um, and then when you get to when you get to a semi final with people like Alan Wynne Jones at a um, at a, at a at a career defining tournament, I think they can go. You know, they can they can drag a lot out of themselves. Ireland reminded me of England the previous year. They looked like their emotional high for the season was beating the All Blacks, which is a pretty cool emotional high to have. But then after that, exactly, it yeah. did seem a little bit weary. And I think with their, you know, and, and we don't know, we don't know what what dimensions they've got to add. They might, they might, you know. I mean, look at the way Leinster are playing. They've got the players to to get a bit more fluency in, in their game plan for sure. But they. When the way they're play, currently playing under Schmidt, when that intensity, physical kind of intensity drops just, you know, one or two percent, that can look really lethargic. And against England, um, sort of that 
period just sort of that third quarter going into the well that sort of half an hour after half time before they sort of had that like that late kind of resurgence um they did look a little bit out of ideas but more so sort of overwhelmed and um you just i i I've, you know they they've got a big they've got a big build up to come their players will be fresh they'll be at the levels you'd expect that um that they were when they beat they beat a really strong really strong New Zealand side and actually beat a, beat a strong New Zealand side with um, a performance that was more comprehensive than the scoreline suggested. Um, so yeah, they won't they won't be too worried. Although they they've got that horrible quarterfinal, don't they? It's either either if they win their group, well, Scott that Scotland game in the group is going to be <laughs> amazing. That's going to be really that's going to be the best one of the best games of the groups. And then if they get through that, it's either New Zealand or South Africa. And if they're anything, if they're dragged down at all by either the weariness that they showed in the Six Nations or by this um, by previous kind of World Cup uh, World Cup setbacks, then that's going to be tough for them. But, you know, again, there's no reason why they don't make a semi and then all bets are off. England, such a strange tournament for them. But the high high points were so high. Some of the attack was, you know, really imaginative and and creative. But the kind of slumps are just, they're just recurring problems. But the, the Wales, yeah. the Wales game to lose, to lose kind of lose steam in that game, and to and to not take chances, and then to um, just to not ex- expand. And, and the thing is, the patterns are there for them to do that. And just the, it just found it so strange that someone like Henry Slade wasn't was in the centre there and just wasn't used as a as a distributor. The way he, after throwing for an absolutely gorgeous pass in, in Dublin, he then made something like. You know, four more passes over the rest of the tournament. It's just, it's just quite a head scratching tournament. And then that, you know, the, the second half against Scotland just defied all logic. Um, yeah, Scotland. I thought Scotland. I thought would struggle on the eve of the tournament just because they lost Hamish Watson on the eve, eve of the tournament. It didn't have John Barkley, and those two are just, you know, they, those two are really important to them. Um, again, they're they're, they're, before, they're they'll be, still be sick about that performance against Ireland. I, you know, they were so so wasteful. Could easily have won that. Um, yeah, France will get. France, you know, Italy. So France um, have the individuals that you would expect them to be good by the time the World Cup comes around. Um, like a, a f- funny one on France. Sorry to interject. Like yeah. I, I, I sat down with Bernard Jackman there a few oh, months cool. ago to do yeah. a podcast, and like he was saying, he went over to France. They before the Ireland game, before even the England game, they were saying Picamos etc. Were saying how shocked they were to see England kicking, and obviously England attacking kicking game was next level in the Six Nations. But they basically admitted that they did no video prep for any of the games. And the general consensus was it doesn't really matter about the Six Nations because when it comes to the World Cup, we're going to be ready and we're going to perform, which is uh, such a French thing to uh, be said. But ultimately, I, I, I fully believe it in a weird way as well. Oh, yeah, I mean, that was nuts. That was, that was just watching what I was at Twickenham for that game and the, the um, England-France game. And... England England kicked pretty well, but just the, the backfield coverage was crazy. You know, and, and having having watched England the previous week, 
having seen the amount, and they've been England have been honing that kicking game for a long time for yeah. you know a couple of seasons. So for that to be a surprise was just crazy. And that I, I, they have they have to learn from that surely by the time the World Cup comes around, and they they will be really dangerous. They will be really dangerous because they've got individuals, and we've seen the roles. How Toulouse can play with a, when they get a bit of momentum. How Clermont play uh, when they don't even need momentum. They've got players to pull, you know, to lacerate other teams from nowhere. They would they'll be a dangerous mm. dark horse. I think I think Italy. What's been really um, encouraging for them has been Benetton's progress. So yeah, although it looks like another really ugly Six Nations for them, um, they might be improving, but it's just against. You know, it's against the backdrop of other teams improving from a higher base and therefore just kind of overwhelming them. So, um, you know, Conor O'Shea is, I think I think they want to stick with him because he's doing good stuff as far as <clears throat> getting players to these franchises and these franchises' performances, I think, are as well as, you know, Kieran Crowley, they're, they're coaches like that, they're, they're a reflection on, on Conor's work. So I think it's worth, worth, worth kind of... Um, seeing that in a good light too but yeah I Wales just I know they, they um they uh announced their training squad yesterday that looks so strong even without Ellis Jenkins mm. who I think is just a fantastic player that look yeah you know that's a reduced squad they're not going they're not going here are 60 players we're going to go and they, they've got a focused um tight squad where competition is going to be really fierce and that's even with giving people like Aaron Shingler a chance to maybe break into it Jared Evans I think is there as well giving him a chance to break into it although that's unlikely because Gatlin's just played I think he's just played a blinder over this four year four year cycle it's been a slow uh, build up tactically and in terms of building depth and um, they look they just look really really strong it's funny you can say you can say one thing but in maybe three or four months it could completely change with relation to a selection and injury god knows what and like especially with france knocking around no one can really predict where teams will be situated in a few months time and even australia as well they're probably the another kind of team similar to france they definitely have the talent uh definitely have the big game experience big competition experience so there is a lot of teams that to look out for and even argentina for that matter as well but the last thing I want to ask, and a few people asked uh, to bring it up, and real quick, I don't know if there's been any advances on us, but you even mentioned his name there, Gatland. A lot of chat over here about the potential next England coach. I remember the last time I spoke a few months ago with you, it was kind of up in the air. Do you feel like they've narrowed it down to a few names? Have you heard anything, or is it still very much in the application process and they're weighing up their options. So Gatlin said yesterday that all England had done was uh, just to state officially that um, they won't do anything until after the World Cup. And now they have um, they have Eddie Jones on this on this kind of quite strange transition period contract where he's he's actually contracted now with an extension um, until twenty twenty one. Now oh, yeah, I saw that. What's, what's really kind of interesting is that after um, Wayne. WRU went the other way and they appointed Wayne Peebat. Now, that in retrospect at the time was great, you know, real forward planning. That sounds really good. But uh, Scarlet's have been really underwhelming this year. Um, and now there's all of this maneuvering. Well, Robin McBride's obviously gone to 
Leinster, that's been that's Leinster, been yeah. So the WRU have lost a scrum coach who has really shored up their 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 set piece. You know, that's Thomas Francis look, was one of the best tight heads in the Six Nations. You know, that and with no disrespect to Thomas Francis, you wouldn't have predicted that uh, a couple of years yeah. ago. But uh, Robin McBride's clearly a very very talented, very intuitive coach. Um, so there's all of this manoeuvring around who who PVAC's backroom team's going to be. Um, you just hope that doesn't. I don't think it will because Gatlin's too experienced. But I don't. You just hope it doesn't kind of impact on how Wales go in the present. So for England, the advantage they'll have of this quite weird kind of two-year extension that Jones is on is that there won't. Hopefully, you know, theoretically, there won't be this. Who's going to be the next guy after after him? Because it's the, the focus is solely on the World Cup, and you know, we we know that Jones has got has got a history of getting um, of getting the best out of sides at these tournaments. So that's what the W that's what the Saudi RFU will hope. Uh, the one um, the one development with regard to Gatland that my my colleague. Uh, Gav Mayer's broken in the in the daily on the Sunday Telegraph, I think, a couple of weeks ago, was that Gatland is the favourite to to lead the Lions in in twenty twenty one South Africa. So, but the kind of but what he what he's been told allegedly is that um, that won't impact on his on his England prospects because he'd take over in twenty twenty one. If that makes sense. So that's not yeah. that's only giving him two years for the next Rugby World Cup cycle. Um, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the coaching stuff at the minute is 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 Sean Edwards and the and the, that just seems like an absolute saga. It's really strange. It, yeah, Wales have often in the contract. Um, France want him as well, um, and he seems to be holding out for kind of high the highest bidder after having not you know after having um, um, denied over the Wigan Warriors rugby league job as well. So that's a yeah. strange. And, and Gatlin's, if you get a chance, have a look at Gatlin's quotes on that. They're they're strong. You know, he said. <laughs> sort it out because it can't be a distraction at the World Cup and that, and that actually bodes well for Wales I think that that Warren Gatland is so is so focused on it because um, there is you know we say that we just said, I've just said it just now but um, we say that and Jones is really good at galvanising side for, for the World Cup I just think Gatland is an absolute master at it that they had no right to win that game at Twickenham they had, the, with the injuries they had they had no right to get to a quarter final in, in 2015 before that they obviously got to a semi-final yeah. in 2011 and now he's actually got this this kind of um, he seems to have all bases covered he seems to have a lot of depth and um, yeah just his stock is going up and up and up so that that pretty much wraps it up Charlie um, I'd let you go right now but I need to really do a quick fire uh, round cool. uh, to keep tradition going uh, I'll ask you just a handful of questions and first thing you think of just say it yeah. and uh, then I can let you enjoy your afternoon so first question is if you could interview one rugby coach who'd it be? Uh, Ronan Agara That's a great answer <laughs> um, Dumbest question a journalist can ask it's hard. Somebody, oh god! So, you know, sometimes you ask a dumb question and somebody answers it brilliantly. I saw amazing. So, what more could you have done? Is quite. It's quite. An, you know, there's a really good NBA clip after. I don't know which player it is because I, I don't know anything about basketball. But they asked about covering Kevin Durant, and he and he just looked. He just he's just weary and just broken. He's just kind of shrugging. Shrugging it, you know, players in the aftermath of a game probably don't. They sometimes they have tried everything that they're capable of. Yeah, someone like Peter O'Mahony, don't say it to him. Yeah. Um, 
your favorite rugby jersey ever? I had a uh, All Blacks old school Adidas, but it was the, it was the white one with the black. Um, oh black yeah, collar and the black uh, three stripes down the arm. That was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, your favorite sports book you've ever read? Oh God, I've had. So, uh, go seven deadly sins okay oh no sorry um, but, um, so, oh. T- uh, your man Tyler Hamilton Tyler Hamilton isn't it Tyler sorry Tyler Hamilton Google it <laughs> I've got to get that right yeah secret race Tyler Hamilton um, who is going to win the World Cup still New Zealand I think okay and last one sum up England's World Cup hopes in three words Keep Billy fit. <laughs> oh, well said. Well, Charlie, that um, that concludes the podcast. So, listen, thanks a million for coming on. Really appreciate you taking uh, 40 minutes or so out of your morning to chat all things rugby. And hopefully uh, next week's final is uh, as good as the papers and the fans hope it to be. So, listen, thanks a million for coming on. And uh, hopefully I'll get to chat to you again soon. No worries at all, mate. Enjoy the weekend.